Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. All right, if you would please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, we will be starting in verse 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 15. Paul is continuing to address questions posed by the Corinthians. And the question that he is addressing today, which he kind of addressed a while back, and, and Ron Young spoke about it as well, is what should we do with food sacrifice to idols? I mean, the food is so yummy and it's cheap. What should we do with it? Should we eat it? Should we not eat it? And so he's going to continue to address that. So we'll look today, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 15 through the end of the chapter. This is God's word. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I implied that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat of it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, 
not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Let's pray. Lord God, we love to eat. We love to drink. And we often forget that this is a precious gift from you. Help us, Lord, to eat and drink and to not eat and drink for your glory and for the good of others. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So a couple years ago, I remember uh, my family was traveling down to Kansas City for Thanksgiving. It's kind of our family reunion. And I had to make a decision on how strict I was going to be on my diet because I was staying away from carbs and sugars. And so I decided uh, that I was going to be good on Wednesday and on Friday, but on Thursday I was going to cheat because it was Thanksgiving Day. And so I, 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 I was good for breakfast, good for lunch, good for dinner. I went running. It was great. But then after dinner, my sister brought out some pie. Can you guess what pie she brought out? Pumpkin pie. How did you know? That's amazing. You're like a prophet. It's amazing. She brought out some pumpkin pie with ice cream and whipped cream. And I looked at Trish and I said, Trish, it's pumpkin pie. It's my favorite. And she has whipped cream and she has ice cream. I've been a good boy. Can I eat it? And she looked at me and guess what she said? I'm not your wife. How did you know? That's so amazing. You're so much like prophets. If you don't know, that was an illustration I shared last week as well. Some of you I saw were like, is Dan losing his mind? He's repeating himself. But, but the reason why I shared that illustration this week is to say food is good. Food is a good gift that God has given to us to show us how amazingly good and glorious and wonderful and creative he is. Did you know that on your tongue, you have 10,000 taste buds, 10,000 taste buds on your tongue of an average human being. Okay, kids, maybe it's less, but average of 10,000. And here's what's even more mind-blowing to me. Did you know that those taste buds are replaced every two weeks? How crazy is that? You know, our taste buds can, can sense, I think it's five major tastes, um, bitterness and sweets and things like, I can't even find my spot. But, but so we sense those different things, but we can, we can taste the difference between, I don't know, maybe millions of different foods just by its texture and by its taste. God created Food and, you know, God didn't have to create it where we would have to eat food and drink water. He could have created us a different way, but he created us that way because he wanted us to know how good he is. I mean, have you ever eaten a meal and just kind of groaned in delight? And we're so thankful that God made cows. I mean, have you ever, have you ever been there? So thankful that God made butter and bacon, and garlic salt, and pumpkin pie. Have you ever been there? You know, there is certainly a temptation to worship food, for sure. And I think I struggle with that, and many do. But God has created food to show us how good he is. I mean, he's the one who said, taste and see that the Lord is good. How many of you here like food? Okay, most of you. What about kombucha? Like, I don't understand that. 
I feel like people would only drink that if they lost a bet. But anyways, even kombucha can show the glory of God, which shows you how miraculous God is, right? Anyways, we eat and drink a minimum of three times a day, probably more. And so the question is, how do we eat and drink for the glory of God? Well, it's interesting because in today's passage, Paul talks about three different suppers, okay? And so we're going to look at the three suppers that Paul addresses and see how we eat each of these suppers for the glory of God. First, eating and drinking the Lord's Supper for the glory of God. Verses 15 and 16, Paul says, I speak as to sensible people. I love this. It's almost like he's buttering them up. But he's saying, listen, what I'm about to say makes sense if you think about it. All right. He says, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is is, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Here Paul's talking about the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate here weekly at Jacobswell Church. And Paul calls the, the cup that we take a cup of blessing. Now why is that cup a cup of blessing? Well, the only reason why that cup is a cup of blessing is because Jesus took our cup to himself. And he gave us his cup. He, he swapped cups at the cross. I don't know if you remember, but after the, the, the first Lord's Supper, uh, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and prayed. And he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What was the cup that Jesus said, Father, remove from me? Well, the Jews would have known what it was. And it was a cup of God's wrath, which he pours out on sinners. And so that is the cup that we deserve because of our sin. And yet at the cross, Jesus took our cup of wrath so that we can have the cup of God's blessing, which we enjoy every single day, but especially on Sundays as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Now, Paul not only says, do we bless the cup of blessing, but he also says that this is a participation in the body and blood of Jesus. And so in the King James Version, this, this term that's used for participation is the word koinonia. If you know Greek a little bit, you'll know that's the term. It's commonly translated fellowship. Uh, the King James Version translates it communion, okay? And, uh, and, so, and so this is what Paul says in verse 16. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation or, or a communion or a fellowship in the blood of Christ, the bread that we break, is it not a participation or communion or fellowship in the body of Christ? And so here's the question. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, how are we communing and fellowshipping and participating in the body and blood of Jesus Christ? Well, let me first begin with what we don't believe it means, okay? We don't believe that it means that we are feasting on Jesus's literal body and literal blood. And so we would differ from our Catholic friends on this. Uh, we can tell this um, by our 10,000 taste buds that when we taste it, it's not the literal flesh of Jesus or the literal blood of Jesus. Um, but we also don't believe it's Jesus's literal body and literal blood uh, because Jesus is no longer dead. Uh, Jesus is alive and he is sitting in heaven above. He is bodily raised from the dead. It is true that Jesus did say, this is my body. And Jesus did say, this is my blood. But Jesus also said, I am the door. Um, but none of us think 
Jesus is a door, right? Like a wooden door. Jesus used physical, tangible, seeable, touchable things like communion, like doors to express the glories of the gospel. Furthermore, we don't believe this is, uh, we don't believe this is Jesus's body and blood because there's no need to re-sacrifice Jesus's body and blood every single week for the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews chapter 10 puts it this way. If the screen works, it will be up there. It says, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at the service offering repeated the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, right? Physically, bodily, he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14, it says, for by a single offering, not repeated every week, a single offering he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. And so we believe that these elements are not the literal body, the literal blood of Jesus because Jesus is bodily raised from the dead and because Jesus's single sacrifice was enough to cover all of our sins. Secondly, the thing that we don't believe about the Lord's Supper is we don't believe Jesus is not present in the Lord's Supper. Uh, Paul is telling us that the Lord's Supper is not simply a remembrance of what Jesus did on the cross. It is that. We are remembering what Christ did upon the cross, but it is more than a memorial. It is a participation in the body and blood of Jesus. We are communing with Christ himself. And so the question is, how do we participate and commune with Christ if we don't believe Christ is physically present in the elements? And it's because we believe Christ is spiritually present in the elements. And those who feast on it in faith are fellowshipping with Christ spiritually through his Holy Spirit. Verse 17, Paul continues. He says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. In communion, somehow, mysteriously, wonderfully, gloriously, we are not only communing with the Lord Jesus, but we are communing with one another and with the church throughout the world. The Lord's Supper not only celebrates our communion with one another, but it also galvanizes it across political parties, national identifications, financial incomes, racial identification. The Lord's Supper communes us together. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What Paul is getting at here is in the Old Testament, there were not only a lot of verses about how they should do the sacrifices on the altar, but there were a lot of verses about how the priests were to eat those sacrifices after they were sacrificed on the altar. And so the eating of the sacrifice was a participation in the sacrifice itself. And Paul's using this to make a point that, listen, as we take the Lord's Supper, we are participating somehow mysteriously, gloriously in the body and blood of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice upon the cross. You know, it's kind of hard to find an illustration that communicates the the communion that happens at the Lord's Supper. Um, But if you've ever seen the TV show Blue Bloods, uh, the way that it ends every time, I think every time, I'm not positive about that, but is that they have this Sunday evening family dinner together at the father's house. 
During the week, they, they, they live in their different houses. They do their different jobs. They have their different political views and their different uh, interests and things like that. But on Sunday evenings, they all gather together at the Father's house for a meal to commune with the Father, but also with one another. I think in a way that is a picture of what we do here in communion. When we come together, we commune with God and we commune with one another through the Holy Spirit. And so how do we eat the Lord's Supper in a way that is glorifying to God? Well, we take it in faith, repenting of our sins, trusting in Jesus for our salvation, recognizing that we receive the cup of blessing because Jesus took our cup of wrath, and then enjoying and celebrating our communion with Christ and with one another. So that's the first supper Paul talks about is the Lord's Supper. And then Paul talks about eating and drinking the demon supper for the glory of God. Spoiler alert, uh, the way we eat and drink the demon supper for the glory of God is to not eat <laughs> the demon supper uh, at all. To understand what's going on in this section uh, from verse 19 through 22, Paul is addressing food that is sacrificed to idols in the context of a worship service to idols, okay? And in those worship service to idols, people would partake of food kind of like we do with the Lord's Supper, but they would do it for a, a, a pagan god. And so to take of that food in idol worship would be a participation in that idol worship. Even if you worship the Lord God, if you went, you'd be participating in the worship of that false god. Now, before Paul prohibits partaking of those meals in those idol worship services, Paul wants to make something very clear first. Look at verse 19 with me. He says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? And then he says, no. And so Paul, Paul wants to make really clear the reason why he is prohibiting that people not eat food in, 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 idols, in idol worship services isn't because the idol has power, because the idol is powerless. The idol is just a block of wood or a, a piece of concrete. It's, it has no power at all. Neither does the food. I mean, the food is just the cow from down the street. And so Paul's prohibition isn't because these idols have power. Verse 19, again, he says, what do I imply? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. What, what Paul is saying here is that when people make sacrifices to other gods besides the Lord God, they may think they're offering to that God, but in fact, they're offering to an orchestra of demons. You see, demons' job is to distract us from God. Demons know that we were created to worship, and so what do they do? They put out their false gods for us to worship. But they're just imitations. Behind it is an orchestra of demons deceiving people. And so whether people are worshiping Aphrodite or Zeus or Allah, what they're actually doing is they're making offerings to demons, seeking to distract us from the one true God. Paul continues, he says, I don't want you to be participant with demons. That sounds like a pretty good rule, right? Like I tell my kids that, don't participate with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Jesus says something very similar to this. He says, you cannot serve two masters for either you will hate one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. We can only have one God. 
This is a warning for our postmodern culture who is afraid to offend anyone. And it will take a little bit from Christianity, a little bit from Hinduism, a little bit from Buddhism, a little bit from New Age religion, and that they'll take the areas that they like and they'll put them together in their own religion and then leave out the parts of those religions that they don't like. This is, by the way, just, this is an American issue. Other countries, if you say there's more than one God, they'll laugh at you. But, but in America, we think, oh, there's all of these gods and we can take what we want from all of these different things and we can worship God as we want to. But in this passage, Paul is warning us not to meddle in other religions. It is an offering to demons. God is like a groom who doesn't want to share his bride with anybody else. That's why Paul says in verse 22, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? And then he says, are we stronger than he? Paul reminds us that we have a God who is jealous for us and that we are prone to wander, that we are weak. And like a good husband, we have a God who loves us and delights in us, his bride. And he doesn't want to share us with any other gods because in fact, he's just sharing us with demons. We are his bride. He is our groom. And he wants all of us to himself. That's how much he loves us. Now you might think, well, that seems kind of exclusive. That seems kind of narrow-minded that you're saying there is only one God, that the Lord is the one true God and all other gods are, are false gods and they're worshiping demons if they go there. And it's true, it is narrow-minded. It is exclusive. But what if it's true? <laughs> think of it this way, today's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Sometime today, uh, my family will sit down for supper so that we can all use our 10,000 taste buds together. And I'm guessing, I don't know for sure, but if it's like previous Father's Day, we'll have steak and we'll have salad and maybe some ice cream afterwards. And the kids will, will join me around the supper table and hopefully there's no yelling or screaming. It will be, oh, Father, I love you, you know, things like that. But they'll give me cards and I love the cards that they make. They're so precious to me and I'll give them hugs and I'll give them kisses and it will be wonderful, right? That's the way it should be. That's the way Father's Day should be. Now, if after this meal, my kids find out, you know what? Um, the father next door wants pepperoni pizza. And I really like pepperoni pizza. And so what they do is they hurry really quick. They put together some cards. They go next door and they sit down with that stranger over there, the, the, the neighbor. And they're like, here's the card. And they give him hugs and they give him kisses so that they can eat his pizza I'd be enraged, right? And then they find out, oh, the next neighbor, well, they're gonna have chicken wings. And I like chicken wings. So they put together more cards and they go to the next father. You see, if I say, listen, I am your father. I am your earthly father. You don't have another earthly father. That is exclusive. It is narrow-minded, but it's true. None of those other men tuck my kids at night and love on them and hug them and kiss them. None of those other fathers changed their diapers when they were little. None of those other men would gladly lay down their life for these kids. And so it is exclusive. It is narrow-minded, but it's also true. This is a warning against a syncretistic society that wants to take all these gods and take whatever you want from them and condemn none of them. The Lord says, listen, worship me alone. I am the one true God. 
and I am jealous for my children and for my bride. So how do we eat and drink the supper of demons to the glory of God? Simply answer, we don't. Don't worship any other God but the Lord God. Devote yourself exclusively to the Lord, for he is your heavenly Father. Finally, we covered eating and drinking the Lord's Supper, not eating and drinking the demon's supper. Third, eating and drinking the unbeliever's supper for the glory of God. Verse 23, Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Now, when Paul says all things are lawful, uh, Paul is not saying murder is lawful. (laughs) He's not saying adultery is lawful. He's not saying stealing is lawful, right? He's He's not saying things that are clearly unlawful are now lawful because of Jesus. That would just be chaos and ruin. But what he's saying is that we have liberty with certain things that scripture is not clear on. Scripture is not clear, in this case, on food sacrifice to idols. And Paul is telling us, or he said earlier, that you do have the freedom to eat this food sacrificed to idols as long as it's not in the context of a worship service. They're free to eat it. But notice here in verse 23, what Paul says should be our litmus test on whether we should eat that food or not. Verse 23 again, he says, all things are lawful. You can eat this meat. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Paul's saying, when you are making a decision on whether to eat meat or to not eat meat, sacrifice to idols, your question should not be, am I free to do this? Your question should be, is it helpful to others? Is it to the advantage of others if I eat this or don't eat it? Will it build them up? I know we've been talking the past few weeks about giving up our liberties I feel like God's just been very timely in bringing that to us. And we keep returning to the topic of alcohol. But I think it's appropriate that we do so because, I don't know if you know this, but Green Bay was named the drunkest city in America. Uh, Five of the top six drunkest cities in America are located in Wisconsin. All right, this isn't something to celebrate. This isn't something to brag about. This is something to grieve over and to repent over because drunkenness is against God's law and it destroys family and it destroys people and it is an offense to the glory of God. And so so if you have the freedom to partake of alcohol, which we do, we must not only ask ourselves, is it okay for us to do this? Because it is, Jesus drank alcohol. But we must ask ourselves this question. Does this build up the company that I am with? Is this helpful for, to my brother and sister or towards the lost? To be honest, sometimes the answer that's yes. Sometimes alcohol can be a way of having opportunities to share the gospel. Sometimes it can be an opportunity for fellowship. But other times the answer is no, it does not build up. Rather, it tears down relationships. In a way, we need to bind our conscience to those we are with. Bind our conscience to the weakest conscience in the room. If you want another example, think of eating meat on Fridays during Lent. Again, our Catholic friends who we love and we care for so much, they have this conviction not to eat meat on Fridays during Lent. 
And, and there's, there's some really good reasons that they might do that. And there might be some bad reasons they might do that. But, but what if instead of trying to force the issue about we're free to eat meat on Lent, we just say, you know what? I'm not going to eat meat when I'm with my friends on Fridays. To love them, to care for them, to build them up in the Lord. We're called to forsake our freedom for the sake of others. Our question shouldn't be, what am I allowed to do? But what is best to do for those that I am with? Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so for the Corinthians, when they purchased meat in the market, they didn't need to ask the origin of the meat. They didn't need to say, hey, was this sacrificed to an idol? They didn't need to do that. Now, if they found out that it was, they shouldn't take it, as we'll see, for the sake of the conscience of their neighbor, the person selling them the meat, okay? But it didn't matter to them. They could take it and eat and be thankful to God for it. Paul continues with another scenario. What happens if an unbeliever invites you over to their house for dinner and they bring out meat? And you're not sure if it's sacrificed to idols or not. What should you do then? Verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to the dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. Okay? Don't ask, don't tell. Eat and be thankful. Verse 28, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, right, in a worship service to idols or demons, then do not eat it. For whose sake? For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. And then he makes it so clear. I do not mean your conscience, but his. Paul is saying we must forsake our freedoms for the sake of others to build them up and for their salvation. Now you may say, well, that just doesn't seem fair. Why should I bind my conscience to other people's consciences why should I sacrifice my freedom? So Paul continues, he says, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? He raises the exact question. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks? And then the famous verse. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You know, it's so fascinating. So often people take this verse and they lift it from the passage that is around it. And they'll talk about how we should eat for the glory of God and drink for the glory of God, do everything for the glory of God, our, our homework, our work, all of those things, which is certainly true, which is certainly true. But please notice what is sandwiched all around this. What's sandwiched all around this is not eating and drinking for the glory of God. It is not eating and not drinking for the glory of God. As it continues on, uh, it says this. It says, give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. He's calling you, surrender your freedom around whatever people you are around. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage. Not seeking my own advantage but that of many, that they may be saved. You know, I'm guessing people accuse Paul of having no backbone, of being spineless, of being a people pleaser, of just capitulating to culture. And the reason why I guess this is because I think that's happened recently in society, in the church. I know for, for us, when, when our elders were seeking to be very careful and, and requiring mass, we got a lot of people assuming our motivations. 
assuming that, that we were requiring masks because we were afraid of dying or assuming that we were requiring masks because we were afraid of the government or afraid of culture or things and we're just capitulating to culture. But what if the reason that we were actually requiring masks for a season was to love people? <laughs> to be honest with you, I could care less about the mask. I'm okay. Personally, I'd be fine to catch the coronavirus and be done with it. That's fine. I don't care. But God calls us to forsake our free. We're free not to wear this. He calls us to forsake it for the sake of building people up and winning others to Christ. And so depending on the context that you are in, you may want to wear this. You should wear this. Or you should not wear it, depending on the context. I'm going over time. So let me just, um, let me skip to the conclusion. Let me end with a very practical illustration as we think about eating and drinking and not eating and drinking for the glory of God. Uh, to build up believers and that, that unbelievers may be saved. Growing up, um, we would have family meal every week and, uh, or multiple times a week. And the way that my mom served dinner is that she'd bring out large platters of food and put them on the table. And we'd have our plates set up and we weren't allowed to take any of the food until after we prayed, okay? So we'd have to wait. So we just have to stare and look at this amazingly delicious food and wait till everyone was there to pray and then put the food on our plates, which I think was a great idea. But what, what we decided to do is that when our parents were out of the room, we would take the biggest steak on the platter and we would lick it and put it back, okay? Uh, just so that we would designate that steak for us, right? So it would be our steak. This is how we did family meals growing up. And then I went off to college and, and, um, and I was a part of a string house and dinner was at 5.30 every day. Okay, sorry, I'm giving your kids ideas, aren't I? Anyways, dinner was at 5.30 and we would have to wait at the top of the steps and at 5.30 the bell would ring and then we would race downstairs. I mean, it was like, have you ever seen those people race down the hill chasing the cheese thing? That's what it looked like. We'd race down to be first for the buffet to get the best food and to sit down and to eat. And so that's what I was used to in how I related to food. It was something that you went for the best to get it first and all of those things. But then my sophomore year, right after I became a Christian, I became friends with, with another Christian. His name's Joe Choi. Uh, became one of my best friends, still one of my best friends today. And he lived in a dorm across the street from our fraternity house. Uh, we nicknamed Joe the Asian sensation because he's from Korea. And when I would visit Joe, Joe had this stash of Korean ramen noodles that are so much better than American ramen noodles. They're thicker, they're spicier, they're absolutely delicious. And when I would go to visit Joe, Joe would not only make a pack of these ramen noodles for himself, but he knew I liked them so much that he would make a pack for me, even though he had a very limited supply. Furthermore, if Joe ordered a pizza, which is like gold to a college student, uh, he would actually give me half of the pizza. I mean, in the training house, if you didn't throw in money, you didn't get any of the pizza. Joe would offer it to me. The way Joe ate and drank and did not eat and drink some of his food for the glory of God and for the building up of the body and the salvation of loss was something I had never seen before. I know that sounds crazy. And it ministered to me so deeply that 22 years later, I'm still really good friends with Joe and it still has had a tremendous impact on my life. And I have sought to imitate Joe, although many times not very well. And I think that's why in verse one of chapter 11, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Why is it that Paul is asking them to imitate him as he imitates Christ? Because we are called to lay down our freedoms 
for the advantage of others, for their salvation, and for the building up of the body of Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that Jesus Christ laid down his freedoms for us. He, he laid down his freedom to be worshiped in the heaven above so that he could come into the misery of this world and take the cup of wrath that we deserve so that we could enjoy the cup of blessing. Lord, as we turn to your table, help us to remember the beauty and the wonder and the glory and the mystery of this table that we get to commune with our Savior and commune with one another. And so God, pray that you would bless us. Bless us with with an awe of, of what we are about to enjoy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus.